This is a Sunday talk with Joel and Andrea, titled Liberating Emotions, recorded January 28, 2001, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. This morning's presentation was inspired by a question from Miriam Reinhardt, and here's what she said. Uh, I would like you to give a talk on envy. I am envious about every little thing. Thank you, Miriam. And then she has a PS. Or how about a talk on anger, resentment, and bitterness? <laughs> <laughs> so then it occurred to me, well, what about other things like fear, lust, pride, greed, sorrow, all those other emotions that seem to cause us suffering? So it won't be just about envy, it'll be about emotions, emotions on a mystical path, how mystics see emotions, uh, what we can do about the suffering that emotions cause us. And I think it's uh, important to start off by recognizing how we normally do experience our emotions. And most people experience their emotions in a very dualistic fashion. Uh, in fact, this is almost uh, a problem of our language. The names we have for emotions come with a built-in evaluation so that, uh, for instance, uh, anger and fear we usually think of and experience as negative emotions. And so when we experience them, we, we suffer, we feel suffering. <clears throat> and then things like joy and delight uh, we experience as positive emotions and they give us a sense of happiness. So the problem with this dualistic way of experiencing our own emotions is that then we start to spend our lives trying to get rid of the negative emotions and hang on to grasp the positive emotions. So whenever anger and fear is arising, we're trying to find some way to get rid of that, to get out of that. And when we feel delight and joy, oh, we think, oh, if only I could feel this way all the time. And we assume that the emotions are linked to our outer circumstances. So we end up trying to control all our outer circumstances. So if there's someone at work, for instance, who annoys you, you try to move to another department or uh, get them fired or you move to another job. And then when uh, circumstances give us uh, joy, uh, we try to cling to those circumstances. We try to hang on to them. So perhaps you uh, buy a house and it gives you a lot of pleasure at first. So you do everything to protect your house. And this becomes a conditioned response. It's not something we even choose anymore. We just automatically respond this way to the various emotions arising in us. And this really is what motivates 90% of our lives. We keep trying to get rid of the things we don't like and hang on to and grasp on to the things that we do like. Of course, the trouble with this strategy, this approach to life, is that, first of all, all the outer circumstances that we want to grasp and hang on to or uh, push away are impermanent. So no matter where we are, we really can't hold on to any outer circumstances. They're constantly shifting. They're constantly changing. So we are constantly suffering. We become attached to something, that house that you really love, and then it burns down or an earthquake comes or something. And then we suffer. More importantly, though, and the thing that's harder to recognize is that our own emotions are impermanent. 
In fact, the very word emotion has the same etymological root as movement, motion. Emotions move. That's what they do. And we cannot hang on to emotions. We can sometimes artificially keep generating an emotion for a while, but you can't do that forever. And in fact, if we start to really examine our emotions, we find that even if we can hang on to emotion for a while, the emotion itself starts to get boring. We become (laughs) dissatisfied with it. We want something else. Because it's the nature of emotion. It's constantly moving. So here's how Chan Su, the great Taoist philosopher, puts it. Delight and sorrow are there to trap man on either side so that he has no escape. Fearful and trembling, he can reach no completion. His mind is as though trust and suspended between heaven and earth, bewildered and lost in delusion. So he's associating with our delusion, our unhappiness in this because we're trapped between sorrow and delight, between positive and negative, good and bad, what we like and what we don't like. So we're just constantly going around, and we never find, as he puts it, completion. We never find a kind of rest. We never find a peace. And if we don't make some effort to change this, it's going to continue. And in fact, not only is it going to continue, it's going to get worse. Our conditioning will strengthen, and so we will continue to suffer. There is no way out of suffering through this strategy. I mean, that's so important to understand. It is bound to cause us suffering because of the nature of reality, the the impermanent nature of reality. It has nothing to do with being good or bad. It just has to do with this strategy and our imagination about how the world could work. It doesn't work that way. And so we live unrealistic lives, and so we suffer. More importantly, though, when we're trapped in this delusion, as Chang Su talks about it, we don't see the source of what could be for us true abiding happiness, a happiness that transcends these emotions that isn't dependent on outer circumstances, a true abiding happiness within us. And if our attention is constantly wrapped up in this effort to grasp onto things we want and push away the things we don't want, we have no chance to see that whatsoever. So, the first step on any mystical path, the first step is to stop this grasping, this trying to hold on to some things that we like and push away things we don't like. To interrupt this conditioned response that we have to everything that comes up, and particularly the conditioned response we have to our own emotions. That when anger or fear arises, that we are no longer controlled by them. Here's how uh, the Christian mystic Theophane the Recluse puts it. He says, there is only one way to begin, and that is by taming the passions. This is the only way really, truly to begin concretely on a spiritual path. Uh, The Bhagavad Gita says, likes and dislikes are arrayed in whatever our senses grasp. A man should not come under the sway of likes and dislikes. They are his opponents. The Bhagavad Gita is a great Hindu scripture. Same thing as Theophane is saying. And it's the same in Tibetan Buddhism, or all of Buddhism. Here's the Dhammapada, which is one of the original root Pali Buddhist texts. Human beings, ensnared by craving, rush about aimlessly like trapped rabbits. Therefore, monk, set aside craving and find freedom. So this is universal, this teaching. And every mystical teaching 
that you look into, you're going to encounter this right in the beginning. And what we have to do is practice the great principle of detachment. This is why we practice detachment. That's what it means to set aside craving. That what it, that's what it means not to be under the sway of likes and dislikes. And there are two primary ways to gain detachment. And the first is through uh, inquiry and meditation. Inquiry and meditation give us experiential insight into the moment-to-moment impermanence of our experience. And that is what starts to convince us that this is futile. Intellectually, we know everything's always impermanent. That's not a, a, a big mystery. But the problem is we don't know it day to day. We're fooled day to day. But if we look, if we observe carefully and closely, we begin to experience this constant fluidity of everything. And then we just see directly how futile it is to try to grasp onto these things or try to push them away forever. It just cannot be done. That starts to give us detachment. Then we can practice precepts and devotion. Precepts interrupt our conditioning day to day. Each precept serves as a little bell that goes off. So when you're about to act out of this self-centered grasping or pushing away, if you've taken precepts and a vow to practice them, that bell goes off and says, ding, ding, you're about to, to do something that's going to cause you suffering. And so you just stop. At least don't do that. Just stopping is interrupting the condition. Don't worry about what's going to happen next. The most important thing is just stop doing what you've always been doing, which creates the suffering. And then devotion, devotion to uh, some experience of the divine. If you've had some experience of the divine, whether you call it God or uh, Brahman, whatever, it doesn't matter. That sense of devotion takes that energy and focuses on something that transcends yourself and your little likes and dislikes. And that gets us to uh, stop fixating on what we want and what we desire and so forth. So that weans us from these attachments and this kind of conditioning. So these are the standard ways mystical paths approach this. And that's how you can gain uh, some detachment. But I'm not going to go into that this morning. I don't know if Andrea is going to come back to it a little bit later. But I do want to then go into one of the great mistakes that people make when they encounter this teaching. These teachings seem to imply that all emotions are harmful. Good and bad, see? So the first reaction is resistance. We don't mind getting rid of the fear and the anger and the worry and the anxiety, but we don't want to get rid of the pleasure and, uh, you know, the desire and that sort of stuff. But then if you are serious about a spiritual path, you begin to accept and understand the necessity of practicing detachment from all emotions. Now, here's where the big mistake comes then this starts to seem like an attractive ideal, actually. Because maybe if you didn't have any emotions, you would be emotionally invulnerable. Then uh, children could die in front of you. You wouldn't feel any sorrow or pain or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Uh, Beautiful works of art could be placed in front of you. You wouldn't feel any joy or sense of beauty. And so there's a kind of trade-off. Okay, so you don't get to join the beauty, but you never have to experience pain again. You're kind of like a fortress, an impregnable fortress there in the middle of life. Now, some seekers make this into an ideal to pursue. And then they go about trying to repress all emotion when it arises. 
And this is one of the biggest traps that seekers fall into on a spiritual path. This ideal is the ego's dream. <laughs> it's the ego's ultimate dream that I am going to be invulnerable. I am going to sit here in my fortress in the midst of all the chaos of the world and it ain't going to bother me a bit. This is the farthest thing from enlightenment you can imagine. And this is why all the teachings, no matter how they express it, talk about essential in our divine nature, in the divine nature of the world, is love and compassion. God is love, as the Christians say. It's not like God is a big loving being. God is love. The Buddhists talk about Buddha mind, inherent in Buddha mind, inseparable from Buddha mind, is compassion in the nature of things. So when we start to think of this idea that no emotion's going to arise, that we're going to cut ourselves off, we are going in the opposite direction. We are not going towards our true nature and the true nature of the world. We are retreating into this kind of a suit of armor that's going to protect us from the world, protect that little I, that little ego from the world. So... These teachings about not coming under the sway of likes and dislikes and so forth, they are extremely necessary, but they are prerequisite practices for more advanced practices to come to understand the true nature of our emotions. The very first thing we have to do is break this conditioning. That does not mean repress emotion. It just means don't act it out, especially don't act it out automatically, mindlessly, without any awareness of what you're doing. So when we interrupt this conditioning, when we practice detachment, when we allow an emotion to arise but don't respond out of this conditioning, we start to get a little space. We start to get a little distance and a little space. And that is a space of awareness. That is a space where attention is not totally absorbed in this strategy of getting rid of what we don't like and getting a hold of what we do like. And then attention kind of expands and we can start to observe our own conditioning. This is the true meaning from a mystic's point of view of what detachment is about. So it's extremely important to understand that. Then we can go on to start investigating the true nature of our emotions. From a mystic's point of view, emotions are like a divine energy. In that sense, they transcend our dualistic idea of good and bad, positive and negative. It's like physical energy. If you take electricity, physicists don't talk about electricity as being good or bad. And it doesn't make any sense to talk about electricity as being good or bad objectively. Electricity just is. Now, we can use it for good or bad purposes. If you use it to torture people, that's bad. If you use it to heat your home, that's good, in moderation, <laughs> these days. And all energies are like this, and energy comes in different forms. But energy does not come labeled good or bad. It is relative. It is relative to the context and to the situation and to how we make use of it. That's what makes it good or bad. So if we ever think that any kind of emotion is inherently bad or negative, then we are missing the point. We are attributing it with an absoluteness it does not have.
Now, it's interesting because in our own experience, almost always when we experience things like uh, sorrow or uh, stuff, we feel it as suffering. It just feels bad. It's very hard for us to actually experience it as not bad, even though intellectually may hear these teachings or read these teachings and understand this. But there is one example from all of our lives where we can begin to see this, and I use this very often, but it's worth reiterating. When we go to the movies, or when we listen to music, or go to a play or something, the play, the movie, the music arouses a whole range of emotions in us. Not just delight and humor, like comedies do, but fear, sorrow, anger. The biggest selling movies arouse the strongest emotions. I used to work in the film business. We used to have a saying, if you want a blockbuster, you have to leave them laughing or crying. And we recently had a very good example of this, the Titanic, one of the biggest moneymakers of all time. Why? Primarily teenage girls went to that movie over and over and over. Why? So they could have a good cry at the end when that, what's his name? That DeCapper, what's the actor's name? The, the, right. the hero slips away having saved his girlfriend into the icy depths and dies. Boo-hoo-hoo-hoo! -hoo. I'll bet tissue sales doubled while that movie was out in the theaters. We love it. You might not have enjoyed the Titanic. You're a more, generally more mature audience. But it's no different. It's no different. We love it. <clears throat> Another big uh, blockbuster was Jurassic Park. And it made so much money, they made son of Jurassic Park and granddaughter of Jurassic Park. Only because it makes a lot of money. That's the only reason they do those things. And what's that all about? Terror. Terror. Stark terror. People not only enjoy sorrow and fear, they are willing to pay their hard-earned money to experience it. They go to the box office and plunk down, what is it these days, seven, eight bucks it's getting up there? To go in to sit in a dark room and experience emotion. That's why we go to movies. If you want intellectual stimulation, you stay home and read a book. This is what uh, movies, what entertainment is all about. In the film business, we used to describe it as orchestrating the emotions of the audience. The people who create these movies know very well what they are doing. They are pulling your strings. They are jerking you around. And you love it. You enjoy it. It's fine. If they don't succeed, you think it's a bad movie. In the middle of the movie, if it hasn't aroused some emotion, you start looking around for the bathroom. Maybe I should get some popcorn. Do you know what I mean? If you don't come out of a movie with any strong feeling, you don't think it's a very good movie. I mention this because if we look at this situation, we see something in our own lives in which we can experience the whole range of emotions and enjoy it. Enjoy it. Now, there's also something else about this. We can ask ourselves, why do we enjoy these emotions in a movie, but when they come up in our, quote, own personal lives, we don't. We suffer from them. 
Why is that? Why do you think that's true? 50 feet. 50 feet away from the screen. Distance, detachment, very good. In this case, <laughs> physical, yes, but that's true. And that's a very good point. You see, we know when that Tyrannosaurus Rex is charging after little kids to gobble them up, it's not going to come after the screen and gobble us up. We know that, right? Yes? We think it's real. We think it's it real. It happens to us, we think it's real. Very good. In the movie, we know it is fiction. We know no true self is going to be devoured and eaten by a Tyrannosaurus Rex. <coughs> We know no true individual entity, soul, whatever, has slipped down under the waters and died in the depths of the Atlantic, right? We enjoy the play, we enjoy the story, but we know in our heart of hearts it isn't real. Sometimes uh, it does happen that, that people kind of cross that line. Kids have a hard time straightening it out. I remember my mother taking me to see The Wizard of Oz when I was, I don't know, six or seven, and when the Wicked Witch of the South or North or whatever it was melted. West. What? West. West. Wicked Witch of the West. Oh, yes, Wicked West. <laughs> when she was melting, I was terrified. I was screaming. My mother had to take me out into the lobby and say, it's just a movie, it's just a movie. That's, you know, that's what we say, it's just a movie. <laughs> what mystics say is, it's all a fiction. Our lives are like that story. There is no fixed entity self in here who was ever born and who can ever die. And it's our mistaking that fictitious character we call I, which is literally an imaginary character. We make it up in our mind. It becomes the central character in a great drama that our minds create about life. And notice there's nothing wrong with the creation of the drama. Just like there's nothing wrong with movies. They're great. I love movies. But if we mistake it to be real, we're going to suffer. Then we're going to suffer. So you could say what all mystical paths are about, ultimately seeing the truth of the situation. That all this is a drama. A divine drama. That's not anything negative about this. A great play, an endless play. And the energy of the play are the emotions. We can say that once we mistake the story of I to be real, the story captures these energies and in the process distorts them. Then we begin to see them as positive or negative in this dualistic fashion in relation to some I. So what eventually we want to be able to do is to start to liberate this energy from this story of I. When we go into see a movie, you see the attention and all that's taken off my story. And the problem with the movies is when that happens, there's no space of awareness. So we don't know what's going on. But what would happen if we could view our own lives within a greater space of awareness and start to see what is going on? Then we would see the true nature of emotions and they would start to transform. 
Here's what uh, the Christian mystic, John Scotus Eregina, says. Let him now consider how the passions of the irrational creature can change into natural virtues. For no vice is found which is not the shadow of some virtue. As pride wears the shadow of true might, luxuriousness of tranquility, rage of fortitude and justice, and so forth. See, sometimes Christians uh, are very strong in this dualistic uh, perception of their emotions and the world and so forth. But he's saying that every vice, if we could but see it truly, it's masking a virtue. If you throw the vice out, you'll throw the virtue out. You see what I'm talking about? Here's uh, the great uh, Hasidic master, Menahem Nahum. The Hasidics are the uh, mystics of Judaism. Am I mispronouncing that? Somebody... Am I butchering that name? No, you can correct me. Correct me. What? Menachem? Good. Thank you. I depend on you to correct me. If you don't, I mispronounce these names on this tape, sometimes horribly. And then some you know, poor PhD student in the future might have to go back and try and figure out who's he talking about. So you'll save this PhD student a lot of work. Menachem. Nahum. Better? I, I'm sure you're right. I'm sometimes spell a little C in there to get that sound. At those times when evil holds a person back and does not let him reach the well of God's wisdom, he should still see in his mind's eye that even in his present state, he may encounter God's divinity in reduced form. He should look at the obstacle that holds him back and seek to understand the root of its life. In which of God's qualities is it rooted? in love, power, or fear. All of these qualities are divine, but have fallen from their place. Now good is to be made of them again. This is what all our worship is about, to purify these qualities within us from their own evil and to raise them up to God by using them in the act of his service. Then he says a very interesting thing. This comes about by means of proper seeing. If we could see the true nature of what we call evil, we would see that it is actually just a fallen divine quality. And in fact, the Jewish mystics talk about everything in the world, good or evil, whatever, contains sparks of the divine. And our task is to liberate those sparks so they return to the divine. Here's the Tibetan master, Lama Gendun Rinpoche. Emotion itself is not a problem. It is simply mental activity, energy on the move, which becomes either positive or negative according to our reaction to it. If this energy of the mind occurs in a state of confusion, a state of clinging and resistance, i.e. delusion, we have what we call ordinary emotions, which give rise to different forms of suffering. If, however, this same energy manifests without confusion, it operates as wisdom activity which benefits living beings. You see, he's saying the same thing that Hasidic Master said. You see, Hasidic Master puts it, the energy of this evil, the, the divine quality, it is to be liberated from it and then turned into the service to God. <coughs> and the Tibetans, uh, he's talking about, if we can take the same energy of our so-called <coughs> negative emotions and liberate it, then it becomes wisdom activity that helps people. It's quite amazing 
when you read through these teachings to discover this. You just have to get a little bit beyond the form of expression, which is always determined by the worldview. And you see the principles are the same. Among the mystics, not among all believers of these traditions, but among the mystics. In fact, uh, I would say that in terms of working with energies, uh, Hasidicism and Kabbalism are, are the closest to the Tibetan Buddhist version, which is what we're going to discuss this morning. The reason we're going to discuss the Tibetan Buddhist version is because, at least in the text that I've been exposed to, they seem to have the most clearest analysis all together in one place and quite precise practices you can do. And I have not found that to be so true in the other traditions. That does not mean the wisdom is not in the other traditions, and it doesn't even mean that... that uh, Tomorrow, a book may fall into my hand, a translation of some great Kabbalist text, and I may say, oh, throw out the Tibetans. Let's go with this one. This is even clearer. So let's talk now a little bit about how the Tibetans see our emotions and what happens when they get uh, distorted through the story of I and what kinds of qualities they turn into when they are liberated. So I've drawn this little um, chart on the chalkboard here. And you will see on the, from your point of view, the left side of the chalkboard, the heading is afflicted. The Tibetans call uh, emotions that are distorted by the story of I afflicted emotions. And then on the right-hand side of the chalkboard is a heading called liberated. And these are what they call the wisdom energies that these emotions transform into. So I want to... First of all, I'll just go mention them here, and then I want to uh, just try to give you, again, taking from our everyday life, some sense of what this might mean, how this is possible. These kinds of teachings, when we first encounter them, sound very mysterious, and everybody wants to run out and find out, well, how do I transform my emotions? And it's, it's actually uh, strange to us when we first encounter it, but, you know, in every area of our life, uh, even under the worst delusion, we have glimpses of truth, because truth is truth. It can't be completely suppressed forever. So the Tibetans divide all the emotions into five types of energy, we might say. And sometimes these are called the five poisons, if they are afflicted emotions. And these are really like uh, primary colors that then you would mix other emotions out of, just the way you take primary colors and get all sorts of subtleties. So, of course, yes, we all know that these are raw and that we, our emotions are very complex, but we can think of these as like the primary colors out of which all emotions are made. Uh, so, we have desire, anger, envy, pride, and confusion or ignorance. I have put with desire sorrow, and I have put anger with fear. Sorrow and fear do not appear in this Tibetan scheme of things. But I put sorrow with desire because usually we experience sorrow in relation to desire. When we lose something we desired, we experience sorrow. I put fear with anger because um, fear and anger are two responses to threatening situations. We have that expression in our language, fight or flight, for instance. And so they go back to a single root. So we could say desire and sorrow when liberated, transform into the discriminating wisdom of love and compassion. Anger and fear, when liberated, transform into mirror-like wisdom of clarity. Envy, 
translates into all accomplishing wisdom of virtuous action. Pride transforms into the wisdom of equanimity. And confusion or ignorance transforms into enlightenment itself or gnosis or realization. Now just stop to ponder for a moment because if you get rid of desire, if you manage to completely repress it, so you don't experience, you know, you can't completely repress it. The energy will come back in an even more distorted form, unrecognizable. But if you could completely repress it and actually get rid of that energy, you would get rid of love and compassion. If you could completely get rid of anger and fear, you get rid of all clarity. If you could completely get rid of envy, you have no, uh, no energy to accomplish anything. If you completely got rid of pride, you would have no equanimity. And if you completely got rid of confusion and ignorance, you would have no possibility of enlightenment. Interesting, isn't it? So, now let's just spend a moment trying to understand, get some handle, some little understanding of what this means in terms of what these mysterious transformations are about. How is it that desire transforms into discriminating wisdom of love and compassion? What does that mean? Well, let's look at our own lives. First of all, when we are in love with someone, we become very attentive to their needs, don't we? Our minds become very discriminating. Ooh, does this person like chocolate or vanilla? Do they like uh, Mozart or rock and roll? Do you know? We are aimed to please them, and we start paying attention to what they like and don't like, because we want to bring them Valentine's Day presents and birthday presents and so forth. You know, we are out to please them. And we become very observant about the beloved. In the beginning, anyway. You know, first year or so. <laughs> Where is that? So, this is discriminating wisdom. Paying attention to what is needed in this situation. When it's afflicted, this is distorted by our possessiveness. So we are very discriminating, and part of it is motivated by love, but we are very discriminating because we are trying to win that person so we can hold on to them. Do you know what I mean? But the same principles at work there. Sorrow, which is an aspect of this, I think more directly uh, we can talk about translate, uh, transforming into compassion. When we have sorrow, deep sorrow, grief, misery. We then can understand the sorrow of the world directly through our own experience. We understand everyone's sorrow. So that automatically is compassion. Compassion means literally to suffer with. Co-passion. Passion in the Christian sense of the passion of Christ, the suffering. So compassion means to suffer with. When it's afflicted, we have tunnel vision. <clears throat> I'm the only one who's suffering. And our attention is like focused so on our own suffering, our own emotion, that we don't understand that this is everyone's experience who comes in this world. <coughs> I have not met anyone, any human being, or even any animal I've ever met did not, that did not experience sorrow and grief in their life. We, in our delusion, grasp this emotion and think it's mine. In the story of I. 
it's not mine. It belongs to all of us. It's universal. It's what we all have in common. That is what our common humanity is made of, in part. There's nothing mine about it whatsoever. Anger and fear translate into mirror-like wisdom of clarity. The easiest example to see here is if we take fear. How many of you have ever been in a situation where there's some immediate emergency, disaster, car accident, uh, earthquake or whatever, or just some medical emergency, somebody's just keeled over right in front of you, whatever, and adrenaline rushes through the body and there's this intense fear, almost panic. And then suddenly there's a shift into this altered state of consciousness and everything becomes super clear. Time seems to slow down. You observe yourself moving, doing what needs to be done with great efficiency. Has anybody experienced this to some extent? See, this is mirror-like wisdom. Clarity. Just clear as a bell. No extraneous thoughts distracting you. Particularly no extraneous thoughts about self. And if we look at this experience closely, we see the intensity of the fear has temporarily suspended the story of I. That's why we are in this almost beautiful state. Clarity. If we don't reach that state, panic sets in and everything contracts around what's going to happen to me. The I becomes prominent in our consciousness and wipes out everything else and all that energy goes to fueling that sense of I. You see the difference? But it's the same energy. Envy transforms into all-accomplishing wisdom of virtuous action. We can see a little of this again in our own experience. We have a choice when we envy someone. Let's say uh, someone at work. They do their job well. They're well-liked by everybody. They get promoted, uh, all this. And we look at them and this Emotion arises, this energy, envy, right? Now, there are two ways this could go. One is, if it's afflicted, we compare ourselves to the other person. We say, oh, I could never be like that. And we become defeatist. It dampens our ability to act. We lose our incentive, our motivation to act. I could never do that, so why bother? Or we can, and sometimes we do, take them as a role model. They inspire us to action. And so we say, I can do that. And we pay attention to how they do this, what they're doing. And we begin by imitating them. Many great people in the world have been inspired by some hero or heroine. And that is the secret of their success, their accomplishments. So you see, again, even in our own lives, in little ways we can start to see. That's the same energy there. When the, when the uh, story of I looks at this other person and compares in this dualistic fashion, oh, well, all that energy just sort of goes down to the bottom and sits there. But when we are inspired, it arises. It becomes the energy of our accomplishment. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Joel, can I just interject? There's, sure. a, there's another aspect here of, of uh, jealousy, which is 
when you want something that someone else has, like a boyfriend, girlfriend, or someone's interested in someone else, and that kind of jealousy. Mm-hmm. And it's very similar, except the, uh, the, the movement is the appreciation for the joy that another person has. This is the, the practice of being happy over others' happiness. <clears throat> and that's also another aspect of how to accomplish. We accomplish by feeling the joy that another person, we imagine the joy that another person might be experiencing and feel that as our own. That's, the, that's sort of just the other side of the sorrow going into compassion. So just the way we feel, when others feel sorrow, we feel sorrow. When others are joyful, we can feel joyful too. For them, rather than be jealous or envious of them. Pride. Pride, when pride arises, when we have accomplished a lot, we think, and the I in the story of I claims these accomplishments and says, oh, look at me, what a wonderful person I am. And there is a kind of a sense of peace for a while. We've accomplished, we've risen to the top of whatever we're doing, our field, or maybe it's just a small accomplishment. I've baked the best cake, I've made the best pasta. And so there is this kind of peace, equanimity, just for a moment. But this is totally fragile because, of course, it can't possibly last. And then when that is afflicted, we also then start to see who's, you know, coming up, who's the next best cake baker, are they going to overtake me, and so forth, you know? So we start to have anxiety and worry as, uh, comes into that. If we realize there was no I in this story, we wouldn't <clears throat> grasp onto our own anything. We would be like space. Then we have true <coughs> peace, true security, True equanimity. Because nothing can destroy space. You can burn it, cut it. I mean, you can try to burn it or cut it or smash it or hit it or insult it. You stupid space. God, you're nothing. You know that? It doesn't, isn't phased. It's perfectly, you know, right? No, it doesn't ever do that. So true equanimity doesn't come from being somebody. It comes from being nobody. And then there's true equanimity. And then finally, and the hardest one for us to understand is uh, confusion and ignorance and how that can turn into enlightenment and gnosis. But we can understand it in this sense. Enlightenment, gnosis, realization is a way of knowing that is beyond thought. And in fact, we have to get beyond thought. Get beyond thought, not in the sense of repressing thought or making it stop, but get beyond thought instead of looking to thought to tell us the ultimate nature of reality, to see directly the ultimate nature of reality. To have attention go from all those thoughts about reality directly to reality. This is very hard for us to do. We are so deeply conditioned to think about things and to look to our thoughts to tell us what things are or aren't. And we are conditioned because of these emotions, by the way, our hopes and fears ride on whether we know what to do or not. But if we come to a place or start to come to a place in our life where we don't know what to think about it, we start to get confused. We become bewildered. 
Our minds keep trying to figure this out, but we cannot figure it out. Then a space is opening up. We don't know it when we're under delusion. We just get more and more upset and distressed. But really what is happening, that whole thinking mind, that whole mentally fabricated universe, that imaginary universe that we create and project on the world is stopping. We don't realize this, but we are constantly creating this imaginary world. You know, it's not like we create it and look at it like a picture. It's more like performing art, you know. We have to continually do it. And when we get confused and bewildered, we're stopping to do that. That can be very frightening because we don't know what's going on. And so we resist that with all our strength. But if we wouldn't resist it, if we would look directly into confusion and bewilderment, bingo, enlightenment, gnosis. Yes? One kind of uh, ignorance is confusing the relative for the absolute. Mm -hmm. But if there weren't an implicit seed or sense of the absolute, you couldn't do that. Yes. So there's a seed of the enlightenment and the confusion. Yes. Good. For those of you who understood that, very good. <laughs> there is, there is okay. actually one experience that we have, even in our relative deluded state, that we get a little glimpse of this. And that is to really make a true creative breakthrough in any field. Usually that creative breakthrough is preceded by a period of confusion and bewilderment. This happens very often in science, and I think of Heisenberg, Werner Heisenberg, who was one of the founders of quantum mechanics. And uh, he and uh, some other scientists were trying to make the new observed phenomena, the experimental evidence, fit the old mode of materialism. And they couldn't make it work. It was just didn't make any sense in that old mode. And it was driving them crazy. They were becoming more and more confused and bewildered. And Heisenberg himself got to the point of such mental confusion and stress about this that he actually had to get out of there and go off and take this vacation. And he went to this island. I think he was also being bothered by hay fever. He went to this island in the North Sea someplace or whatever, Baltic Sea, I don't know where it was, and just let his mind totally relax. And then suddenly he got it. He saw quantum mechanics. He was the first one to see the fundamental outline. And he saw it in one fell swoop, like a vision. And he talks about rushing back to his hotel room and trying to work it all out with the mathematics. And he was so excited and so in a hurry, he kept making stupid mathematical mistakes like I do, you know. And he had to go back and rework it and so forth. Now, in this case, you see, there is a kind of, uh, uh, to borrow the analogy, mental quantum leap. He, they couldn't figure it out in the old way. And they had to get to the point of confusion and distress to realize they could not figure it out in the old way and to just drop that. And when the space was cleared, there was a chance for something creative to jump in. Now, the difference is, and we've got to be very clear about this, in enlightenment, we're not jumping from one set of thoughts to a new set of thoughts. We're not jumping from one view of the world to a new view of the world. We're jumping off views altogether. We're jumping into the space in which views arise, we might put it crudely. So this is the uh, Tibetan way of presenting the transformation of emotions into uh, wisdom energies, divine energy. And I wanted to present this to you 
not because most people can go out and start doing this right away. And this is what Andrea is going to be talking about in a minute. But so that at least you do not make the mistake of viewing your emotions, any of your emotions, as being something ultimately or inherently negative that must be gotten rid of. And, and especially so you don't start pursuing a spiritual path with the idea of the way to get enlightened is to get rid of anger, of fear, of sorrow, and all these things. That will not take you to enlightenment. That will take you to this ego dream. It is the wrong road. So if you have this in mind, if you know this, then you can at least start to look at your emotions in a different light. Instead of trying to push them away and get rid of them with a little curiosity, with a little wonder, with a little sense of, oh, what is really going on here? And keep this in mind that ultimately this is what we want to do. We want to raise those sparks back to the divine. We don't want to get rid of the divine. And if we try to get rid of any of this stuff, that is what we end up doing. So, this was the overall presentation, and now Andrea is going to talk to us. To continue right along, the analogy of the movie is so powerful because we can all experience how we enjoy being in the dark movie and experiencing all the emotions without labeling any of them as... I like this feeling this good emotion, I don't like feeling this bad emotion. So given that, we already know this state of direct experience or openness. So what is the big difference between sitting in the dark movie and just being in the movie of our own lives? In the movie, and Tenzin Wangel brings this up in the book, and it's a very powerful metaphor that you can kind of keep continually looking at. We can be eating chocolate, sipping a Coke, <laughs> watching our eyes, and all our senses can be intensely functioning. But guess what we're not doing? The mind of thinking is not jumping in to do something with our direct experience of the senses. It's actually just allowing what's there to self-liberate. Thought is not jumping in and having a dialogue with you, the observer. It's simply accepting what is the screen and the movie as is. It's not trying to change it or manipulate it in any way. So that's where you could bring a little further the metaphor of the movie into our lives. So what is involved in being mindful or being presence of awareness is the capacity to be directly perceiving whatever is arising in awareness, to be experiencing it with great passion, i.e. not pushing any of the feelings or the experiences away, to be fully present for whatever arises in the sphere of awareness, be it a movie or be it a room or be it a relation, whatever. And so then, so then what's the problem? Well, then we all recognize, or maybe not, because sometimes it happens so quickly, and this is the wheel that we're attempting to slow down through being more mindful, there's a jumping in of thought or reaction, like or dislike, fear and aversion or grasping, that then begins to create, as Joel said, a strategy 
a story. How to, while I'm still eating my piece of cake, strategize how I'm going to get the next piece. (laughs) Or while I'm experiencing something that is so hideous and I could barely... How I'm going to make sure this never happens again. So, unlike the movie... What is interjected there? What is interjected is our conditioning of all our fear, of all our desire, all the things we think we want or need to do with what is simply arising and dissolving. Now, the mystic also knows something else. The movie of our lives arises moment to moment in the perfection of the divine play. So, if we are caught up in the thoughts and not realize that we are then continuing in relationship with the appearances, the phenomena arising, based purely on our reactions. Then we're lost. Then all the purely perceived or directly experienced emotions become the afflictions. Why? Because the I of liking and disliking and grabbing and pushing away has entered the picture. We are continually over and over again selfing. And how are we selfing? With grasping mind and aversion mind. And how is this going on nonstop? There is no awareness or mindfulness or recognition that I has entered the picture that aversion has entered the picture, that grasping has entered the picture. So a wheel, a mechanism, is just set in motion again and again and again. And this is just going on and on and on. So the ignorance or the confusion of all this is also the not knowing what's happening of all this. So what are we attempting to do in terms of liberating. The point of liberating is not to get rid of anything. The point of liberating is to let be what, what is, is to simply not be pulled along like, like an animal to slaughter, but to dance with what's already <coughs> happening. If we forget that thought itself is the selfing process, and take the thoughts about to be real, then we are lost and totally afflicted. So the process of affliction needs to reveal itself completely. So that's why we get the word liberation, because we're in bondage with affliction. So therefore, we need to recognize that there could be liberation right in the midst of the bondage. There's no other place liberation can happen. The suffering of the emotions is the exact place where the the beauty of the wisdom of compassion and all our great powers of divine being are born. There's no place out of it. So what is a spiritual path? What are all the paths pointing to? Method. Methods of coming close, so close to ignorance. So close and close and close to ignorance. 
that ignorance dissolves into pure awakened reality. But the, the, the key is we have to, first of all, recognize that there's ignorance. So how is there ignorance in terms of our suffering? In terms of our suffering, we are usually so caught up in our reactions that we're way into suffering before we realize, oh, I'm lost in a thought, oh, I'm lost in suffering. So that's approaching ignorance. We approach ignorance, we break up the mechanism by, be, by realizing that this is what's going on. So we become more and more mindful, we bring recollection of mindfulness into our activity that is mostly mindless, in the sense that it's just going on and on, over and over. So we approach ignorance by becoming aware, by becoming, in the moment, aware of our very awareness. To become aware of awareness means to recognize I am caught up in thought about the direct experience in the movie of having all the senses going on. Now I am having a reaction to, this mo- to my movie because I think it's real. So we have to recognize that there is duality at work. There is the sense of I here and the world there and then a sense of having to strategize and manipulate it the way we want it. If we don't do that, if we pretend from the beginning that we're existing in a non-dual state, like the mystics, then we're a little bit confused. But at the same time, the mystics are saying, you are already that. In this very moment, you are awakened. So how could both these things be true? Both these things are true. Ignorance and complete awakened reality are simultaneously true because anything whatsoever that exists in the mind of our phenomena is permeated with the wisdom of our pure, empty, open, clear awareness. Absolutely everything that goes on, including reaction and judgments, aversion and grasping. In the light of pure awareness, in awareness of our awareness, everything is revealed. So there has to be the awareness of awareness. When aware, the spiritual seeker recollects to be mindful that thinking is taking place. There's nothing wrong with thinking as long as we are aware that thought is taking place. Without being aware thought is taking place, I have lost awareness and the thought is the created world. I take it as real. So the radical act of self-arising awareness is that wherever you are and Recollection to do this is really enforced by the powerful, passionate energies of the passions. Otherwise, things are just kind of going on in such a lackadaisical fashion. But when these passionate energies or experiences or reactions are arising, that is the perfect place to enter awareness, to allow 
self-arising to awareness to reveal itself. So how this, how this happens is first to approach ignorance, to come closer to our ignorance by remembering that there is such a thing as ignorance. And the ignorance is believing that the thoughts about is the real thing. So it means to com continue to develop mindfulness of every moment in awareness. Mindfulness of thinking, mindfulness of feeling, seeing, perceiving, etc., etc. The difference between sitting in the movie is that while we're eating and watching and hearing and experiencing, we're not aware that those things are going on. So that is the, the awareness of the very awareness is not present. One is being fully entertained. And the fact that there's no I there gives us a break. Because we're not ever really fully entertained. We're usually pretty upset or grasping onto what we think is our life. So we get to leave the I and we get to be fully entertained. But now we have to take it the next step. Which is whatever the moment, whatever's arising in awareness, with a relaxed and open field of awareness that doesn't take any of the joy and pleasure of experience out of it. We simply remain aware so that awareness can continue to flow like a river that doesn't get stopped anywhere. You begin to get so close and close to simply just being with that you can pick up grasping when it arises. You can feel it arising in the space of your direct sensation. You're becoming so an open, spacious, relaxed, perceptive field of pure, naked awareness that everything arises and you're completely at one in the space of being aware of everything that's coming and going. Nothing goes unnoticed. In this process, what is going unnoticed is what you become aware of. That is a very pivotal point. The moment we become aware of having been lost in thought is a moment where we have to relax and open and recognize right here. It's not to create additional thoughts about, oh, I was lost and judging it, or, oh, I'm awake now, this is awareness. Both those things are grasping onto having a positive or a negative sense. Awareness itself lets everything come and everything dissolve of its own. We don't want to do anything with thoughts, anything with emotions. We want them to come and reveal themselves. But we want to know that there is something there that my mind is creating, that thought is present. So in the intensity of a feeling, I then am there with awareness. And in awareness, I can drop, detach from the thoughts about the moment's experience. And I can only do this if I'm practicing being aware and detaching from thoughts when things aren't so intense. 
The practice of detachment has to be an ongoing event. Otherwise, when the big, big, big things come up, I'm not prepared to pick up the 400-pound weight because I've just been kind of unconscious about being thinking and believing my thoughts the rest of the time. So when the intensity of emotion arises as a ding-dong right here, then right here I need to be able to detach from all thought about what's happening and simply remain in the completely perfect, direct experience of the energy. And that completely reveals the truth of the emotion or what you thought to be good or no good, 100%. And all what's considered afflictive emotions become naturally luminous, radiant aspects of your being. If you don't have emotions, you have nothing to offer others. You have no intensity. You don't have energy to play and dance and, and revel in the display that is the divine constantly revealing. How could we dance together if I refuse to dance with my own energy? So the fear of our emotions is perfectly understandable. Because we can all see what we have done to our loved ones, to the world, because we don't recognize that we are afflicted in the emotion and we're simply acting it out. So we recognize that the beginning stages of the path to practice virtue, to refrain from activity which is non-virtuous, to simply cease, to stop behavior that causes suffering is important. And once we know that, we then have to enter another dimension of faith and trust and risk. And that's where we simply abide in the moment-to-moment awareness without any judgment of right or wrong about (coughs) what's arising in awareness. But we cannot fool ourselves. We cannot just blindly act out what we're not fully aware of. And that is so important. So I must recognize the different stages of relationship with the emotions or with ignorance. I'm calling afflicted emotions ignorance. And the way we recognize that and the way we act it out, the way we allow it to naturally progress to full, complete awakening is just the difference of being completely ignorant of the fact that we are completely taken over and acting out all kinds of emotions with no consciousness whatsoever, to going full circle, to being completely at one with those emotions, with that affliction, in full awareness. And so, from this step on, I don't think I should talk anymore today, because it does get very detailed and specific. And that's what these books are about and other talks will be about. But the way we liberate what arises in awareness is completely dependent on how we have been previously present and mindful. The more mindful we remain, the more 
the capacity to be a field of awareness in which what is arising and what is being perceived as arising are not separate. Awareness is, is p- penetrating or permeating everything. That is the state of full awakening, where appearance and awareness are not separate things. They're the same. But that's we go there. We have to go there in greater and greater <coughs> capacity. So first we have to start off by simply being mindful and attentive to what is arising in our awareness. And most of the time what's arising are thoughts, and we're buying into those thoughts, and we believe it, and that is the ignorance we are stuck in and repeating. So the first step is mindful awareness that whatever's arising in our awareness, we we are aware of it. We recognize thought as thought, and we don't have more thought about that thought. We simply recognize thought and remain there. And what is remaining there? Empty, luminous, open, clear, completely aware awareness. I think we'll, I'll stop there, because it'll start a whole other talk. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any questions? Um, on the board, at the bottom, where ignorance and confusion transform to enlightenment, <clears throat> my question is, how does unknowing fit in there? Excuse me? Unknowing. Unknowing means we come to recognize, or we come to a place in our lives where we no longer know how to figure things out. Mm-hmm. And that usually feels very uncomfortable. What, what about when it becomes comfortable? Well, when it becomes comfortable, either two things have happened. One is we have surrendered our knowing out of such love and devotion, we don't care anymore whether to know. We, if you want to put it in bhakti terms, we've just given it all up to God. And then it can be actually very blissful. For most people, though, we don't really have the faith in that sense to, to make that leap of surrender. So then we feel like since we don't know how to behave or what to do, we're extremely vulnerable. But if we can stay in that unknowing and let that mind that's trying to grasp it, knowing, figuring things out, let it just subside, then the truth is just, as the uh, Hindus say, as plain as the fruit held in the palm of the hand. Because it's been the figuring out and the projection of that figuring out onto the world that has been our veil. And that's actually the ignorance of grasping reveals itself as the spacious openness of just being. See, that's gra- if grasping reveals itself to you, it becomes unknowing or spacious openness to constantly know. Instead of needing to know, you simply are. And in having the direct experiences of a needing to know, we can just allow without even without any thought, without even labeling it. Just as it arises in the field of his sensation, we simply, with awareness, let it dissipate. Let the energy just be there. Don't have to do anything with it. That's direct experience of grasping, emptying into pure presence.
Yes. Um, <clears throat> some time ago, you gave a little story of, uh, it was from Theopon, Theophan, I think, of two people looking in a store window at a golden goblet, or I, I like to call it a painting. And one of them, one of them says, oh boy, that's gorgeous. I'd like to have that in my house. You know, I wonder how much it would cost. Well, I maybe I could even take it. Well, and, I, and the other person is saying, oh, what a beautiful manifestation of God's glory and majesty and gee, the workmanship. It's just, and the one, the first guy was possessive. He was grasping. The second one was detached, but he was so appreciative. And that made me think of like, when I get a pain in my neck or something, when I'm when I'm trying to sit, um, sometimes I'll just go into the pain and I'll just appreciate the pain, like it was, like it was a little kid, you know, wanting to be appreciated. And I just try to see, well, where is the pain and what color is it and how heavy is it and what's it doing, you know, and how's it moving and so on. Now, is that a this kind of appreciation? Is that part of what it means to? be not grasping or pushing away any thought or object or anything, but just to appreciate, appreciate it's what it is, what it's, what it is. I don't know, what, what's there? It is. And again, as Andrea says, though, usually these things unfold because we have subtler and subtler levels of thought. So it's very, it's wonderful to turn around and something that you've always felt was negative and you've always been pushing away to look at it directly and see what there is to appreciate about it, you know? Pain, we could not live without pain. It would be a disaster. Pain is a guard dog that lets us know the body is, you know. So pain is a great ally. I mean, we can, we should really be thankful we have pain. But we usually start by appreciating, having some other story of why we should appreciate it. Do you see what I mean? <coughs> that's, that's fine, that's no problem with that, but then we wanna become sensitive to that and start drop that story and get closer and closer to the naked appreciation of what the Buddhists call just the suchness of the thing. Or Meister Eckhart, the great Christian mystic, would call the isness of the thing. So finally, as we are drawn by appreciation, there's always more to appreciate. Not just the fact that we can create another story in which this is now in a good light rather than a bad light, but to get beyond all of that. Then we have touched into the, to the naked awareness of what is, and that appreciation doesn't depend on any thought we bring to it. That appreciation is just there in the situation itself. And as Andreas says, it just discloses itself to us. It just you know, reveals itself. The Sufis often talk about unveiling, like because uh, women in, in many Muslim countries are veiled. And so on your wedding night, there's an unveiling. You know, I mean, it's, <gasps> wow. If you are a Sufi, you appreciate. (laughs) There's no or maybe not. So appreciation, if appreciation is synonymous with willingness or openness, yes, it's and with then willingness and openness is revealed to be synonymous with pure space, and pure space becomes synonymous with pure love. Is there one inquiry that you would give us all when we are feeling afflicted with something to point us in the right direction? A good way to begin is with obsessive thoughts that are created by some worry or some desire. Let us say, for instance, that you had an unusual pain in your stomach. Okay? 
So you think maybe something's wrong here, right? So then you call a doctor, you describe your symptoms, you make an appointment. Uh, the doctor doesn't say, you've got to go to the emergency room right now. Do you know what I mean? He says, well, you come in Thursday and I will we'll see what happens. Now, this is the role that the thinking mind is good at and its proper role is supposed to play. Oh, pain in the stomach, unusual. Uh, note what the symptoms are, call the doctor, express them clearly, set up an appointment and go see the doctor, okay? So, but now the thinking mind's role is finished. But now you watch your thoughts. <laughs> oh my God, I know this is cancer. I just saw a movie last night that had the same thing. This is cancer. Who's going to take care of my cat? Oh my God. I, I mean, your mind keeps going, right? It creates a whole story. Now, the reason I say this is a good situation, because here it's very easy to become aware of what the thinking mind is doing in this situation. And it doesn't mean that you trying to get rid of those thoughts or even trying to get rid of the worry about what's going to happen. The truth is you do not know. We start with truth. You see, you don't know. When you get to the doctor, you'll get more information. Then you'll know more. Maybe. In the meantime, then you can experiment with becoming aware. For instance, these thoughts are going on, and you recognize this is pure. I mean, in the most grossest sense, imagination. This is story of I. I can see it. So once you get the hang of it through practicing with grosser level uh, phenomena and experiences, you'll start to see, oh, this just naturally becomes the practice with subtle level things. And the more you practice, the less effort you'll have to put into, as Andrea said, remembering to do the practice. Your mindfulness will start to spontaneously kind of manifest during the day without any big effort. So, oh, oh, that's uh, that's imaginary thought. Oh, I see. Oh, that's really creating the story of I. Here I am spinning some great fantasy while, while I'm driving my car through the uh, gorgeous winter day, do you know? Well, where is my mind? It's down in Australia with the survivors or something, you know? <laughs> or you or could, a Super Bowl. Or you could just have a simple mantra. You could just, Mark Twain said this, and it's the greatest mantra to, to, to completely shock us back into pure awareness where we recognize that the mind is just creating worlds and worlds of experience that have nothing to do with just about anything. <laughs> and you could simply remember what Mark Twain said, which was, the most awful things in my life didn't even happen. <laughs> just remember that and that will keep shocking you back into naked awareness is that helpful? yeah okay. we've been a we've gone on a little long this morning so maybe we should bring the formal part of the morning to a close and if any of you would like to hang around and uh ask us more questions, you're welcome to. And uh, in the meantime, there's tea out there and the library is available. So until we see you again, peace to you all.